Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Nick. And this is our review of Darkman, starring Liam Neeson, Francis McDormand, Colin Friels, and Larry Drake. Directed by Sam Raimi, released in 1990 on a $16 million budget, grossed $48 million at the box office, had a couple of sequels, a video game, all kinds of stuff. So we're talking about this. Comic books. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is you would think this was based on a comic book, but no, it's, it's made by Sam Raimi based on a short story he wrote. In the wake of like the fact that he couldn't get Batman or the Shadow rights, so he went to Universal, <laughs> pitched this. They said, "Sure." Damn, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> and so, inspired by things like the Shadow and other detective noir of the 1930s and all this, he wrote this short story and then panned it out into a full movie. So he decided, "I'll create my own damn superhero if you won't let me have one." Uh, I mean, imagine like a time when a studio would have said no to superhero properties. Like, obviously, he was pitching that in 1988, 1989, before Batman came out, and then everything got greenlit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing, though, going back to this, because, like, for me, I remember uh, I remember seeing this when I was younger. Like, I remember the trailers on TV for it, and I remember uh, kind of renting it, like, one Friday night at the movie, at the video store. But um, this is the first time I've watched it, probably since it actually came out on VHS, back in the good old days of Blockbuster and, uh, you know, Family Value Video. <laughs> so, um Real interesting to go back to this and kind of, uh, you know, kind of see what what Ramey was doing at the time. And uh, it, it wasn't what I remembered because, like, my gosh, this is like pure Ramey from beginning to end as far as just some of like the crazy little slapstick stuff in here and and seeing, uh, you know, Liam in his role here, um, you know, before he became, you know, the taken guy, I guess you could say. Yeah, or his, his first action um, movie, as they say. Yeah, or even before he became Schindler. So it was amazing, though, actually, like, going back and kind of reading about this, that like Bruce Campbell was who originally who he wanted to play this. And it totally makes sense, especially when you get kind of later in the movie where I'm like, Oh yeah, it's it's he's pulling off a of Bruce Campbell right now with some of like these facial expressions and kind of the over the top kind of physical comedy that we get during one scene. So it wasn't surprising to see that Bruce Campbell was the one originally wanted, but the studio said, uh, "No, he's not bankable." So yeah. they went with uh, you know Liam here. I guess there's a couple other people that were up for the role or well or who they wanted to, but I don't know. It's just, it's kind of interesting going back to seeing him in, in, a, in an early role like this before you know. But the other thing too is like. Man, he he hasn't aged a day. He's always looked like he's been in like his he's always looked like he's been in his late forties. Yeah, he's just kind of held in frame. The man's in incredible shape. The thing about Liam Neeson that strikes you is he's six foot four and he he composes the screen. He's big and in Hollywood, six four, you might as well be seven feet tall. I mean, because like Francis, Francis McDormand is miniature next to him, you know, and all these other people. So they they have this fun way of shooting him around the other actors where they sort of downplay his height. And, you know, George Lucas had to do that with the Star Wars movie, too, because Ewan McGregor is not nearly, you know, that that tall. And so it was fun to see him sort of hulk around and, and do this. He's gotten a little bit bigger in his in his older age. But you're 
you're right. The face kind of remains the same. I didn't know him from anything, you know, and I remember seeing this exactly like once as a kid, probably on a rental. I don't know. Maybe saw it on Showtime or something one weekend. I don't know. It, it didn't leave any impression other than I remember one scene specifically where he rips his hand through a rivet. And we'll talk about that when we get there. I, that was sort of my lasting memory of dark man. Like I knew nothing else about it. Um, I didn't remember any of the plot. So, you know, we just started back up film strip. Brian and I did the crow and I told you that and you said, Oh, you ought to do like dark man. And I was like, Oh, well, you know what? That's a good idea. We hadn't talked about that. And again, you know, the biggest movie of all time and, Almost at this point, and definitely the biggest comic movie of all time is out, and we are doing everything but talking about that. So it's the most film strip thing ever, and so I, I was glad to revisit it too because it's been a you know, it's been a long time since I even thought about it, and you know, this movie's almost thirty years old now, and I was curious to go back to it to see how well it held up, or maybe didn't hold up, or did it matter? Because you know, you go back to like Batman nineteen eighty nine, and you you can't really ask like does this hold up or not because it's built around a world that doesn't exist, so you don't. Really have anything to compare it to necessarily like you can't put it in modern day or anything like that um and then you've got you know powerhouse actors in it as well this one you've got powerhouse actors before they reach the height of their powers i mean francis mcdormand gets nominated as much as meryl streep these days for oscars and liam neeson uh outside of some recent unfortunate comments was a very bankable star for a number of years Oh, yeah. And then you got the guy who played Durant, who went on to play Miss Dr. Giggles. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in a in a Peter Benchley TV flick called The Beast, which I hold a small candle for. He's Larry Drake's a funny, <laughs> funny guy. But I, I knew him as the bad guy from this. I've never seen Dr. Giggles confession. So uh, maybe one day. But uh, uh, anyway, so, yeah, I, you know, I was curious to come back to this, too, because, again, I remember nothing about it. And so what did you remember about it before you, you watched it other than, you know, the basic stuff? Um, I just remembered, you know, Liam was in it. I also remember it was a Sam Raimi movie. And the only real thing I remember from the movie was the helicopter crashing into the overpass. I remember that trailer. I don't know if it was just, it was on TV or if it was, I mean, I probably said this on like old past shows, but like anytime there was like an HBO weekend, it was like, man, we recorded everything from, you know, beginning to end of the uh, free trial and, you know, if you ever watch the old HBO, like they would always between movies because they'd always start movies at the top of the hour or, or at the half mark. And so if the movie ended at like at 10 after, you'd get like 20 minutes of previews for like other movies that they're going to be showing. So I don't know if it was maybe that that I saw it on where I just kept on seeing that trailer and that helicopter hit the bridge over and over and over and over again. But, yeah, I mean, that that was all I remembered is just that. Yeah, and see, I didn't even remember that scene. I couldn't have told you. I couldn't even tell you what the setup was, how he became Darkman, none of that. I just remember Larry Drake. I didn't remember the Drake character or any of the, I didn't remember the girlfriend. I kind of remember the girlfriend. I didn't remember it was Frances McDormand. And, no, I, I didn't remember it was her either. Yeah, I, I thought, thought it was, was somebody like, else. Like I, I When she popped up on the screen, I was like, oh, she was the girlfriend of this? Okay. You know? Yeah, I figured it Like, if you would have asked me, like, who's the girlfriend in, like, Darkman, I would have said, like, it's like Leah Thompson or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Like kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the other thing I also remember from the trailer too is like when uh, Durant is in there calling him a cockroach. That's the other part I remember. Yeah, that, yeah. There's that line and come. Yeah, I remember this. Like, yeah, it's like a cockroach. You kill him and a thousand more show up. And come to find out, it's not even him. Like that's as we'll find out. That's Darkman in disguise as we get there. I guess, I guess we should do a plot summary though before we get any deeper into this thing and a deeper into the dark as you were. So Liam Neeson plays Peyton Westlake, a scientist who has discovered a way to produce synthetic skin. 
only problem is the skin degrades after a hundred minutes exposure to any kind of light. So it like boils and bubbles and you know does the total recall thing of somebody's face. So when his love, Julie Hastings, an attorney, discovers that her boss, uh, real estate developer Louis Strack Jr., or Donald Trump Jr., whatever you want to go with, is in league with a notorious gangster, Robert Durant, played by Larry Drake, she's asked to look the other way. However, the brief she wrote exposing the treachery ends up at Westlake's lab somehow. We'll talk about it. Durant, on orders from Strack, goes to the lab to wipe out the evidence, so he kills Westlake's assistant, torches the lab, throws Westlake in a vat of acid, but in the explosion, Westlake is thrown from the building and he survives horribly scarred and his nerves severed, meaning that he can withstand immense amounts of pain, but he's now prone to violent outbursts and a lack of self-control, like a 13-year-old hopped up on sugar. And so Westlake returns to his destroyed lab and tries to use his skin, but discovers who's behind the attack in the process of it. And he goes and masquerades as several of Durant's uh, goons and takes them out. But he reappears to Julie and they start to you know, romance. But again, he's on a you know, ticking time clock. And when he stays out in the sun too long at a carnival, he loses control of his temper and is exposed to her. And when they attempt to reconcile, Strack and Durant plot to kill him and her for, damaging, for the damaging information. Westlake eventually takes out Durant by crashing his helicopter into a bridge like we talked about. They blew that in the trailer. And then confronts Strack in disguise, but Strack's onto it. Takes him and Julie to a top of a high-rise construction. And after a fight with a rivet gun, or I didn't know there was such a thing that would shoot like more than an inch in front of you. Strack's thrown from the building, impaled. And even though Julie professes her love and support for Westlake, he retreats in disguise to fight corruption from the shadows as Darkman. And that's the best I can do for a plot summary for a movie that... You say it's vintage Sam Raimi. I, I mean, it's vintage Sam Raimi. It's vintage Chuck Jones. It's it's vintage French Freely. It's, it's a lot of Looney Tunes in this too, man. Like, oh yeah, a it's lot even of vintage stuff going on here. It's even vintage uh, Danny Elfman too. I mean, oh, as soon yeah. as that score hit in the beginning credits, I'm like Danny Elfman, and then like five seconds later, music by Danny Elfman. I'm like, oh yeah, but yeah. I, I know. Can we just <laughs> say got... that, like it is it is outtakes from the Batman score. <laughs> like that's all probably. I mean, it, um, no, it definitely is. Like you listen to it, I'm like that's that's in the Batman movie sort of. It's the motif in reverse. And and look, Elfman, and he's not the only composer that cribs for himself, but he's notorious for it <laughs> and it's actually would, would lead to him and Ramey have a separated years later. But what you see here is Ramey wanted badly to make a comic strip movie of some kind, but he, again, he couldn't get the rights for any of it. So he invented one. And what I find amazing about that is not only did he invent one, but he decided to include tropes from them. Like the, push and pull zoom out it's when Westlake has his freakouts like the the background becomes cartoony it's almost like out of that Twilight Zone movie with that one chapter where that happens you know like the little kid that's you know freaking people out in the cartoons it's it's very odd it's a style you don't really see anymore and um it's it's funny though because a lot of the angles he does when he tilts sideways and goes at somebody's face and stuff like that. Have you ever seen the movie The Quick and the Dead with Gene oh, Hackman yeah. and Sharon? It's the same damn camera angles in the movie. The only thing missing is like the cartoon backgrounds. That movie's a cartoon as well. Oh yeah, no, he loves doing like kind of like angled close-ups on people's expressions with, uh, you know, almost like it's like almost like dually focus where it's focused in on the background and the face at the same time, where it's yeah, it's it's very Ramy. I mean, especially like even in the even the beginning scenes, like 
you know, the, the opening scene with them all fighting in this like garage where Durant shows up and the dude's got a machine gun fake leg. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, God, that, that actually kind of reminded me of RoboCop a lot too, with, with that kind of shootout that was going on Thank there. You. And, uh, yes. yep. But the one thing actually, I think is kind of cool is I think Durant's actually kind of a, he's, he's a cool, you know, villain where, you know, he's, he's just bad. You know what I mean? It's like all common sense is like, how can someone like this be walking around in public? You know what I mean? He's just going around killing people for the sake of killing them, but he's, that old school kind of comic strip, you know, villain. And I like his calling card where he'd go up to guys with a cigar cutter and he chops off their fingers. I thought that was kind of a little cool little thing that he does to kind of, you know, he, he takes collectibles with him when he leaves. Yeah. What's (laughs) even better is he keeps the fingers in like a humidor, you know, later. And he tells one of his goons to kill somebody, make sure you cut off one of the fingers, you know, and bring it to me. This what I love about Larry Drake is the voice he affects. And I just did a bad impression of it, but it's very similar to that. In this movie, it's not what you would expect coming out of this, sort of hawking dude and he's not very tall but he's kind of a big guy right and you would expect him to have sort of this gruff kind of rough voice and he he can talk in that voice that character in the beast the benchley thing that i mentioned in the opening sounds like that but he has this sort of high kind of nasally you know, almost a bad midwest weatherman voice going or something. i i i take him as like he's like your pharmacist you know what there I mean? you go, you're gonna go yeah. to, yep you're gonna go walk in the walgreens and he's gonna be the guy behind the desk it's like oh he's kind of a bigger guy probably eats pretty well and it's like boy it's not the voice i was expecting from him but you know he's but but he's a great character actually i think he's out of everybody in here i think he kind of hits he hits the tone and the mark the best out of everybody in here it's like he knows the type of movie he is and he's having a lot of fun the smart thing that Raimi decides to do is to open the movie on him and not on Liam Neeson or Francis McDormand. It doesn't open in the Westlake and Hastings. He opens it on the heavy, who's actually not the big bad. He's just the big bad's tool man, you know, which is something that like Buffy did for years is you would meet like this, this mini evil. And then it would ultimately reveal the big evil, especially like from seasons three on, that was sort of their, their thing. And, I, I liked that in this because you you automatically introduce him as the heavy, and you mentioned it in the in your opening there, Nick. I, I got the RoboCop vibe too. It's it's the bad guys, you know, shooting it out at the warehouse. It's it's over the top violence, um, and it, it, the thing is, is it's playing itself for so much fun. But you realize pretty quick that the violence and the language in this movie this is a rated R movie. So it, oh, yeah. how did this make $48 million when the target audience had to sneak in the back door? I mean, cause that, this was when they would start checking you in 1990. And so believe me, I know that from experience and I don't, I don't know how that happened. Like, right. Like, well, I, I think what happened is it, it's the Batman, uh, holdover on that. Cause I oh. think the way that they made the shoot the way it's like, okay, it's going to be a dark superhero. And I mean, Batman was the biggest thing ever in 1989. So this comes out, <clears throat> The year after, you know, it's like it's a Marvel effect. I mean, Captain Marvel, Black Panther, Ant-Man and stuff like that. You think those would do good on their own? No, it's because it's everything that's led up to them that gives them that big box office jump. So it's the same thing here where, you know, we didn't have connected universes back then, but it was like, oh, dark superhero with, you know, this going on. It's like, boom, okay, that's people are going to want to go see it because they love Batman. I just wonder how many parents got snuggered into taking their kids into this thing, and then Liam Neeson starts dropping f bombs and breaking people's. Fingers oh, I bet you a ton. <laughs> I, I bet you a ton. I mean, back then, what was it? You got you got a, maybe a movie trailer every once in a while on yeah. TV, and that was it. It wasn't like today on the internet where you could go and look up the stuff. It was that, and then the newspaper when you're looking up movie times, you know. So I think you 
probably a lot of kids did get their parents to sneak them in there without knowing what it was. But even on the whole like thing of it being an R-rated movie, it's a pretty tame R-rated movie. I mean, yeah, yeah there's a couple F-bombs here, but there's not really much gore outside of kind of the dark man stuff with like his hands and his face and even like you know the vi you know the violence in here is really it's not robocop level oh no not at all like they, they shoot a guy in the head and all you see is the smoking pistol like the cartoony smoking pistol and stuff like that they you know they break the fingers but they don't really show you what he's doing with the cigar cutter i mean it's all implied and it's in the sound work and it's it was I, honestly i kind of like that it leaves a little bit to the imagination it, it made me cringe like just sitting there doing that like going oh Ouch, you know, and I'm watching it on my laptop 30 years later or whatever, but I, it was, it was effective. The thing is, it, it, what I, I keep, I couldn't get over watching this time was this is a movie called Dark Man, right? You would think more of the movie would be in the dark. There's so much of it that's like in the slight shadow and it, or it's sunny. I don't know. Maybe it was just the, the version of it I was watching online, but I was amazed at how bright it was and like how exposed everything was because you would think you would want this to be almost completely shadowed, right? But Raimi goes the opposite direction, which is sort of a good way to sum up a lot of his career. Oh, yeah. Should have been called like stylistically shadowed dark man or something. <laughs> I don't know if you can sell the studio on stylistically shadowed man, but I like what you're thinking. That's a yeah. It's always it's always funny when he's like in the shadow. It's like oh, you can always see his good part of his face. You know that little quarter section around his eye, but the rest of it's all in the shadows. It's like what? it's almost like Desperado, where it's like oh, he walks in yeah. and the lights just dim just for him. It's like oh, it's the same thing with Dark Man. It's like he turns around and the lights checker just for that eye. I tell you the thing. I, the thing I really like about the what Neeson's performance is, and he, it, you're right. The accent slips in and out. You just let it go. Eventually, he just stopped doing that, and it was kind of like with Arnold. Like they they tried to make him do an American accent once, and they realized like that just wasn't going to work. So they just they always had to write in some line about I was born in Austria and brought here. Like he's I, I'm from Ireland, you know, whatever. And so he's here. It's no big deal. What I love about his performance is after he gets his face burned off, basically, you know, his teeth are exposed, and he can't, and he don't have lips. This is how you talk. He affects that throughout his entire performance. And that's, it's just a subtle little thing, but in the hands of a lesser actor, sorry, Bruce Campbell, you, that wouldn't have been in there. But Liam Neeson realizes I don't have lips anymore. That that's going to affect the way I sound like. And apparently he went and like spent time around burn victims and things like that to get speech patterns from them to learn how they operated like that. You know, what it went through it really affected him in a lot of ways too. Like he said, he, you know, he did a lot of charity for him afterwards, but I'd love that. That was something he picked up as an actor. Like if I don't have lips, I'm going to sound different, you know? And so he, when he's dark man and he doesn't have the, you know, the fake mask on and stuff like that, he's always got that little affected, you know, uh, lisp or whatever with his, with his speech. Yeah, but also the teeth, though. I mean, it looks like he almost has, like, horse teeth. The way they stick oh, out. yeah, they're fake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's oh, not yeah. all, like, like Liam Neeson has your know, full teeth. Like, he's got these little, like, chiclets, you know, lined up on the sides. So. Oh, yeah, you could totally tell. They're, like, they are glued right to his lips. You know, yep. it's, like, yep, the way it's going to be on it, though. But the whole thing, too, is, like, you know, you're saying before, it's, like, how it opened up on Durant. And, like, man, I think the worst part of this movie, though, is the relationship between him and, uh, you know, Francis McDormand's character. Because, yeah. man, is that a drag. I mean, even the beginning, it's, like, oh, we're going to show them that they're this, you know, happily romantic and love, you know, characters and stuff. And it's, like. Uh, it's just the whole setup, I think, with her, like she's got this document and everything that like kind of, you know, something that this Durant guy needs to get back. And then it just like just so happens that her boyfriend, you know, can do this. It was it was kind of a big like 
okay, that's kind of all coincidental. But the one thing I did like though, and it's like, it's, you know, it was probably like way out there back in 1990, but like this whole like thing with like, you know, growing flesh and everything. I mean, that's 3d printing. I mean, we're doing that right now. And even the medical profession is doing stuff with that as far as trying to figure out how they could actually like grow ears or noses in here for, you know, burn victims. I mean, it's actually pretty top, you know, pretty topical when you think about what's going on in the, you know, the world today. So it's kind of interesting to see kind of, you know, reality copy fiction, you know, 25 years or 30 years later. Well, and that's the thing. They, they have been working on it this long. They finally got it good enough to where it, it can be mass produced. And it's even getting more mass produced as we go forward with 3d printing and whatnot at, at this point in time though. And I mean, I know as a kid, I would have thought, man, that's pure science fiction, like, but it seems awesome and I'll go with it because it, it's really sort of the triggering MacGuffin of the whole series or whatever. I want to go back to what you were talking about with their relationship, though. The problem is not that they're not doing anything to try to sell us on it. I think Neeson's trying to give a performance. McDormand's trying to give a performance. Clearly, she's a talented actress. But the problem is, is you can have people who look like they get along and that they work together, but then they have zero chemistry. And I don't know it because there's not a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff about this. I get the feeling that like these two people really got along with each other, but they had no chemistry at all <laughs> together. And Oh, yeah. I can take them as friends. I don't take them as yeah, lovers. They're like they brother and sister almost. It's very, it, and at least their love scene is kind of cut. And it is the one thing that's in shadows, probably because Raimi knew that would get him an X and he couldn't, couldn't do that. And Warner's wouldn't, or universal wasn't going to stand for it, but th- no offense to them, but no one wants to see that either. No, no I mean, it wasn't what, you know, what, it's not what you come to this kind of movie for either. And they know that, but what I find interesting about it, and we're talking about something again, that's almost 30 years old now is how the roles are reversed. Generally, what happens when the the women in these kind of movies, right? The hero proposes to him and she's like, yes. And she drops everything for him. And I love how she's like, I kind of got a career going and I sort of like this thing we have going on. I don't know. Get back to me later on the whole proposal thing. And I'm like, well, that that's a very modern sensibility and something that's again, 30 years old that you don't see. But I like the fact that she had enough agency as a character to do that. When frankly, like she's really there just to be the convenient plot point between all three, you know, main uh, character arcs here. Yeah, she's kind of the MacGuffin of the whole thing. You know, yeah, it's she, like, yeah she's the MacGuffin. So with with yeah, really bad Leah Thompson here. I'm glad you called that out. <laughs> Howard yeah, the know, Duck uh, Hair, yeah. Yeah, it totally is Howard the Duck Hair, but that was the one thing, like, when she was told, I'm like, oh, I gotta, I gotta think about it. I kind of like having my own place. I'd be like, I don't know, man, I think the relationship's over now. <laughs> it's like, she's not interested uh, in you. I mean, but. yeah, it's, it's weird how that works, but let's talk about her boss, Louis Strack Jr. His whole thing is he is bribing members of zoning commissions and the ones that won't be bribed, Durant is sort of muscling out of the way for him so that he can build a brand new city, creating new jobs, you know, and cleaning so, up things. Uh, Robocop. Yeah. Robocop. No, but he's like, o- he's OCP like, trying to redo Detroit. Yeah. Become, he, it's going to become capital city or whatever they called it. Yeah. He's, o- he's OCP, but like it, the thing is, is like you listen to him talk and you're like, well, it sounds kind of like the zoning commission used to get their head out of their asses, man. It sounds like you've got some good things going on here. It's weird now in you know, 2019 to watch this movie and go like, I don't know. Is he the bad guy? I don't know. I mean, but what, maybe, maybe but the killing people's a, not so good, but there are other What is it about it. that time, though, is that it's about these like – these guys coming in and like wanting to reduce cities. Cause you like, look about, you know, Robocop with OCP. I mean, even like something like Die Hard, it's all about this big giant mega skyscraper. And then this guy with like his whole like 
we're going to build more big, tall buildings. I mean, were these guys seen as like evil back in like the early nineties or late eighties where it's like, Oh, they're going to come in here and just make these big giant skyscrapers. I mean, are they like the evil people in the news? Well, they're seen evil now, you know, for the same reason, maybe more for more environmental reasons now, but no, it's the same thing. It's anytime there's somebody who is tearing down what is old and building what is new while yes, they're creating jobs and they're doing things that are, you know, new and more sustainable or whatever, they're displacing the history that is there. There is a disconnect between people who are at the top and pushing forward new agendas and then everybody left on the ground to pick it up. You know, that I think that's what they're playing off of here. And look, in, in the ni- late 1980s, we were coming out of the 80s into the 90s. We'd all seen Wall Street. Greed is good. And everybody had turned on that. And, the, you know, the crash, the mini crash had happened. People had seen this. And we were, we were starting to turn the corner into a new sensibility into the 90s. And we, we weren't going to have the economic prosperity we had had because a lot of these kind of industrialists had done really shady stuff to build all the lavish glass and, and metal towers that they had built out there. Well, to me, I'm surprised, though, it isn't like they, they didn't kind of like play more on that aspect where it's like maybe he's trying to like build these new buildings over like these more slum areas where it's like the poor and rejected people, but good at heart. And maybe like, you know, Dark Man is like that's where his area was, where he kind of worked with his like 3D printing and everything, where it was like he's going to be the protector of these people and stuff. You know, he's going to protect the slums and stop these people. I'm surprised they didn't kind of go into that type of thing. Maybe it would now if they actually remade it, because, you know, we've seen that story a thousand times. But, you know, that that's one, one thing I was surprised with was like, man, it's like the guy who wanted to build all these buildings is the evil guy. But really, I mean, he, even though he was the big bad, I mean, the, the bad throughout this is Durant. And I'm lucky we are because, you know, the main guy, I mean, man, he comes off like uh, – the other guy from RoboCop, the uh, dude that became the dad on Twin Peaks. When we get over to like the whole scene where you know they're blowing up the um, his lab, I was actually surprised. I mean, again, RoboCop, where it's like we're going to go over the top with how we're going to affect this guy, where they're trying to put his head into like this, I guess, vat of acid or something. Yeah, this and, is just laying around open in the yeah, lab. But, and, then, <laughs> and then it's got like two like electrical pillars on each side that you know he goes and grabs and he's like frying himself that burns through his hands and then he ends up getting face dunked in there and then um i do like the little uh bird it reminds me of you know the alien movies because they always had those little uh dropper birds or whatever you right. call them the little, the little thing and then it hits the uh the match and blows him up and i guess is did you find it unintentionally funny when he flies out of the window just like oh no screaming at fire <laughs> i know i was like they probably tried to shoot that for weeks and it was just the best that they could get composite wise to make it work because i mean Raimi's using a lot of old film work here and we're talking about at the dawn of computer generated effects so there's some cgi stuff in here that's very rudimentary but most of this is practical like they blow up a building they you know they blow the building up and then they kind of have him thrown you know in another set and they just superimpose it together the helicopter fight is all rear projection and and it looks like an old bond movie or something so there's something quaint about that i got a real kick out of like how far he goes and explodes and in that, uh, it's a long way from his building to the river. But uh, oh yeah, he lands and she it, doesn't, so. and she do, and she doesn't even see him. Like she's no. down below, and like it blows up, and he goes flying overhead of her, lands in there, and she has no sight of like oh yeah, the six foot four guy just flying out of the building. But what I found like even funnier though was they have a burial for him, so they obviously, but they obviously didn't find a body. 
So I guess maybe they, found, they thought they found, he was they just... They found an ear. Like the guy says, there wasn't nothing left but just a little piece of him or buried. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So, it's, so, not really how, it's not really how that works, but nope. it's like... Sure. But, so. but, but, but they're good like burying an ear and maybe some computer equipment in a casket. But um, then, they, then they find this guy in the water and bring him to a hospital and they just automatically assume like, oh yeah, we find guys like this all the time. Like yeah, they drop no. a line to cover it. Yeah, like, the medical school is like doing a tour and they're talking about how, yeah, we just found this dude and it's... Nerves are all severed. It's some you know mumbo jumbo medical stuff. Well, they whatever. literally they literally say like, yeah, we find like three like this a week. I'm like, what the hell's going on here, man? Maybe this one guy's got the right idea that he's tearing all your shit down. <laughs> that you're finding like homeless burn victims washed up in the lake or in the river or whatever the hell it is. It's like, man, and and then what do they do? It's they cut like they do something in his brain or something they, with like, they a, cut like, some like kind a nerve. of they, again they do that that medical mumbo jumbo they cut some kind of nerve where again he he has high tolerances for pain but it also like cuts off his oh, ability to it, control himself at all times so again he's I a petulant kid I, now I took it that they like cut like something like a sciatic nerve or some shit like that. And like, basically now he has no feeling and that's what was causing him to go mad was that he can't feel anything. Like he's just like this empty vessel. Cause she was going on about like, Oh, how this affects them. And like, eventually like their rage and all these impulses oh. come out because they can't feel anything. Yeah, better yet like, though. She takes out a pen knife and stabs a burn victim on a tilt a whirl in the multiple time to multiple prove time. how he can't feel anything. That's not how that's done. Okay, under any circumstances, all right? The, even the doctor in the house on Haunted Hill didn't do that, okay? Like, it's not, there's nobody that psychotic. Like, and this woman lives. That's the other thing. I'm like, why didn't he come back and kill her? You know, that's a right to be wrong. She doesn't need to teach future medical professionals. Doctors are disconnected enough as it is. Jeez. I mean, you know, it's like if, if he couldn't feel anything, it's like you could have probably took like a feather and maybe like rubbed it on like the bottom of his foot and showed like how he's not reacting to it. I mean, there's other ways of doing it besides like basically grabbing what, what looks like almost like a nail and just jabbing it into his leg. I mean, that was, that was crazy. But of course then he wakes up and then he, he jumps out the window or something and like ends up roaming the street. And one thing that kind of got to me too, is I'm like, okay, this is like, they're taking Batman and the Joker and like combining them into like, a uh, like anti a- anti hero yes, exactly because it's like he is basically like the Joker, especially when you see him later. The way like he's laughing and all these like different emotions going through his head, but yet he works in the dark and he's like you know still I guess on the side of good, just like Batman. So it is kind of like an it's like a combination of them both. Yeah, exactly. And I got a lot of Joker off of it. And I know again they were shooting around the same time, so it's probably not. You know, to say that Remy ripped that off, but when he's wrapping himself in bandages and stuff, the other thing that I sort of took from that was Remy's a big fan of serialized movies from the fifties and sixties. I kind of thought he was doing like a crib of the mummy, you know, but like if the mummy was a, a scientist or the Invisible Man, you know, and and I know people bang on it. Hollow Man's actually a pretty good representation of that that idea as well, uh, which is you know later on in the nineties. But the, he's doing the same kind of stuff. He keeps himself bandaged up. We notice like how like messed up his bandages always are and he's doing like fine computations and all this stuff i'm like how how on earth could you operate like this like i know he has no sensory feeling anymore and it's like a drust of adrenaline that causes him to overload every now and then but wouldn't that just make you crazy where you couldn't actually complete sentences and thoughts much less like be able to go do scientific research by the way that you had not perfected up to that point like you had just figured out like keep it out of the light and it lasts longer on the skin and then the bad guys come in 
I guess with him, like, you know, especially like the way he looks and like all the, all the bandage stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, it looks very much like the mummy and everything like with, with what he's doing. But like the one thing I, I really kind of was laughing at, I thought it was kind of a cool effect was his hands. And like when he's typing and everything and like, you actually see, like, it's not a third degree burn. Like that stupid doctor was saying, like his skin is literally gone. Like you're seeing the tendons and like the muscles working when he's typing on the computer. And I thought, you know what? You know, being early 90s, I'm like, that that's actually kind of a cool effect. I mean, yeah, you can tell it's fake, but it's got that kind of nice charm to it. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, like, realistic special effects. I always kind of like to be able to see kind of the strings behind them because it just kind of adds that movie magic to it. So seeing stuff like that was kind of like, you know, stuff I enjoy, especially with, like, Raimi, especially when you look at, like, the Evil Dead movies and everything and what he did there. It, lo- it looked a lot like the way Jason looks in Friday the 13th, 7, The New Blood, when he's all coming out of the water and you can see his bones and his skin and all that kind of stuff hanging off of him. It's the same kind of effect. It's, it's pretty good. I mean, it's well done. Again, there's something there's something really nice and quaint about those practical effects and just being able to make them work like that. And it's just little subtle stuff like that that, again, you may not notice the first time you see it, but you watch it or watch it with a critical eye and you go like, oh, that's that's kind of neat that they show that. You know, that, I mean, it's gross and it's supposed to be grotesque, but on the other side, it's like, oh, that's... Uh, kind of what it looks like when that's working i guess okay but you're right like it's like it turned his hands inside out almost mm-hmm. like his bones were on this it's very weird effect that happened to him. and like they do that as part of the electrocution that he got i don't, I don't know how that works exactly but no we we get west like trying to reestablish his whole process i got a real kick out of when he makes a hand or like forearm skin with a hand and he puts it on like a big glove you know and liam neeson <laughs> is like stretching his hand out like oh i got my hand back you know so he's got the one hand and then the other hand's messed up so he's got the Michael Jackson going and that's when he realizes like oh I can I all he has to do though is like feed a picture into a scanner or something and then it can build a face in like 60 hours which I was like that's that's pretty good time for now <laughs> like much less oh, yeah. 1990 I was like that's I mean I I looked at that and I was like that reminds me of weird science when they made the girl out of magazine parts you know it's the same kind of <laughs> idea right I mean, but back then yeah. in, in 1990 computers can do everything so sure yeah like, we just go yeah. with it right God, my scanner right now takes forever. I wish I had something even half as good as that. Yeah, I know, like the whole computing process, like just to, if you've got younger listeners here or whatever, you, the phone you're listening to on this can outdo the entire lab, like in a second. Like it's not even close right now. Your your old PlayStation 2 is probably running faster processing than some of what this dude Oh, my with. God, yeah. yeah. Probably your freaking PlayStation was. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing how far we've come. But, uh, yeah, I mean – but what we get to, though, is we get to the point where he's like, he's going to take his revenge and he's going to like totally go like, you know, I'm not going to go there and just like kill him or do something like that. He's like going to just totally like screw around with them right. as far as getting them all to like kill each other. So the first thing he does is like he gets the pictures of the bald guy. And that's one thing I actually like about Durant's crew is they're all individuals. Like you can kind of you may not know their names, but you know that they're part of his crew because they all kind of got like distinct looks, almost like Die Hard, where it's like mm-hmm. they all you got all the different types of guys. You got the Asian guy. You got the, you know, the the black guy with the glasses. You got the long guy. You know, you got the guy with the long blonde hair the short blonde hair it's like they all got individual traits about them so you you know so you can be able to tell who it is so he goes after kind of the 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 chubby bald guy and sets it up i guess what he does is he like knocks him out and then he goes over and he sees that this guy's picking up money for durant all the time and then ends up stealing the money and then basically like putting like plane tickets acting like he was going to get the hell out of dodge right and um they go in there and they end up killing him yeah, they, uh, throw, they, they throw him out the window and through it, yep. which throwing people out a window and having them land on a car 
was like a, a Mondo effect in the late 80s and early 90s. Now that seems like no big deal, right? Because you have... Well, they yeah. always land back first, though. You notice that? They always <laughs> yeah, land back. Because, they, never because, do it. they never do a header. <laughs> it's because stunt people have a union, Nick. So, okay. And they, they're wise to not do it certain ways. Also, every time you do the header with the dummy, it's clear that it's not a real person. Uh, but no... I like that though. That he sets the guy up. He you know shoves the money around. He he sets him up like Dark Man's not just about like going and killing people. He's about killing people, but he's about letting them know that it was that they that they screwed themselves. Basically, he wants them to know that I got. And it also messes with that gang's head because they're like, "Wait a minute, what's going on?" Like they they start to question themselves, and then when he gets them all crossfired on each other later. I mean, they do the silly trope where he, he pops up next to one guy looking like the guy, which I'm going to say he perfected that technology quick because like he gets some of those people he gets pictures of the others. We don't see him doing that. And all of a sudden they show up to the lab and like he's face printing out like mass. He's just rubber stamp copying those things. Right. Just so he can throw well, it on real doing, quick. He's doing that between putting like a little tin hat on his head and head and, and, and dancing around like a $5 for a picture. Thing I know, he's I mean, doing. Yeah, he's it's nutty stuff that is going on. But that's what I mean, though, is they said, like, you know, with Bruce Campbell, it's like you can tell like there was they had him in mind for this with those oh, type of scenes. I, I don't doubt that he didn't do some of this stuff, too, like that. He was. Well, he's at the end. I know, I know he's at he's at the end. He's like the last face reveal that like Westlake puts that on as a disguise. But I wouldn't doubt that Bruce Campbell didn't step in and do a little bit. He's got a tall guy too, so he could he could pass for decent maybe in ninety. I don't know, but I, what I, what I, we take a break from the action here and from the craziness that's going on to go back to the love story, right? Because we got to reestablish oh God, with Julie, it's right? So bad, oh, it's so bad. It, yeah, if you thought these people had no chemistry in their makeout scene in the first part, it gets worse because the, like he treats her. This is an attorney. All right, a corporate attorney. So she didn't just walk out of law school, right? She's been doing this for a few years. Genuinely smart person has carried on adult conversations with other people. When he takes her to that carnival, I'm like, it's like watching two 16 year olds. It is ridiculous what goes on there. It's it's so, and it undermines the whole thread of the movie. You could do that, have him reestablish with her, meet with her, and then he's just out in the sun too long and all that without him like having the whole baseball game and you know breaking the Carney's fingers and throwing him through a wall and all that you know goofy Looney Tunes stuff. You know what they should have done is axe the freaking romance, and that's just his sister. You know what I mean? It's like you could drop a line like. Oh, their parents died and they grew up really close and everything. And they're, you know, siblings, best friends and everything like that. And that way you don't have to do that stupid, like romantic subplot because it just doesn't work. Because, you know, as we said multiple times, there is no chemistry between these two. It comes off like siblings. And I'm like, you could do all the stuff with like the carnival and everything. Just have her be like a single mom. You know what I mean? They're going to take the daughter there or something like that. And it's like you could easily get that all passed and not have to do this awful freaking subplot of the romance. Because I guess the only thing that's good about it, though, is like when we get to the carnival later and it's like he does that little like crazy thing when he's trying to win the like pink elephant for and it's like you said it's like something out of the twilight zone where you got all the comic strip stuff going behind his back and he breaks this guy's fingers and like the reaction on each of their faces when he does that is it's it's hilarious and i think it's meant to be though at the same time but uh he looks like the little cartoon teapot that overheats oh he does he he turns red he does turn red like a teapot it's it's like smoke came out of his ear like literally it was it it was that ridiculous and the thing is though this is all a setup so he could ask her was there somebody else 
while you thought I was dead. And she has to reveal that, yeah, I was kind of having this thing with this real estate developer guy because we got to bring him back in, right? So after all the blow up at the carnival, he goes back to the the rundown lab where he's set up. And, of course, his skin's all melted off now. And he reveals himself to her. And she's like, you should have just told me and all this. And I'm like, this still rings a little false, but okay, I'll go with it because the movie needs me to. But what happens next is when I really just start turning on the film a little bit. She goes to tell Strack that, like, look, I can't see you anymore, even though we weren't really dating. We were just sort of hooking up or whatever. But I can't see you anymore because there's somebody else. And he's like, well, all right. And then he takes a phone call about you know, some other bad business he's got to deal with. And she just happens to find the same coffee stain memo hiding on his desk that, like, the boyfriend wound up with at his lab that got all this crap started. Like there's one too many conveniences now that just don't, just don't work. And the thing is, is nowadays this movie would be like two and a half hours long. It's 90 minutes. Like they're flying through this stuff. And I can tell, like I'm missing something here. Like the connective tissue there just doesn't work for me. I know they're telling it to me. They're telegraphing it for me, but I'm saying as a viewer, I'm watching that going, that's just one convenient step too far. And that's what I mean, though. If, if they would have made her just a sister and they could have made this guy her boyfriend, you know what I mean? And she ends up finding out that he's in cahoots with Durant. Like, he, she finds out from her brother, you know, that basically it's like, oh, well, you know, this Durant guy was the one that killed me or tried to kill me and everything like that. And he was after you. Then she finds out, like, oh, well, this whole relationship was based upon the fact of trying to get her you know, finding out information that she has so he can keep on building his empire. And then that's why she breaks up. Better yet, if she was either his sister or she could have just been his attorney or whatever, why can't Strack do something where he needs to get in front, like that guy's technology in some way or another interferes with his business plans? Did they have anything to do with each other? Was he going to blow the building down? Was that what he wanted done to be able to build another high rise there? I never understood where his real estate development scheme crossed over with Westlake's like scientific research and how all those things got mixed together it's just it's messy it is it is they should have made it a lot more streamlined and actually like you said like you know have it be that he had some investing interest in something else that basically put them at odds where it was we got to stop this technology from coming up because then it actually makes it all very much kind of you know, circular with everything that's going on where it's, it's like the thing that the guy was trying to destroy is actually going to be the thing that's going to defeat him. You know, it's kind of makes it a little bit more poetic, but I mean, it, it is what we get right here, but you know, then we actually get to the, you know, the big climax or the big, I'm going to say climax with the big action scene when it's all going to be, you know, him finally taking out Durant's guys. You could still, you know, the, the mission impossible face switcheroos throughout it. And you know, the, I mean, they did that in mission impossible where it was, they put a mask upon a mask on a guy to kind of fool him. And, um, but the one thing though is like, it ends up, it ends up with the climax of Durant in a helicopter with dark man hanging from a cable as he's like swinging him around town and everything. And it's totally like evil dead in the way that like evil dead started off pretty serious. And then it kind of gets a little gonzo at the end. And this entire shit, this thing with the helicopter is completely gonzo with what's going on. I mean, he's like running like a, like a Looney Tunes character on top of a bus, you know, as he's being dragged by the helicopter and it's just, it's over the top, but it's, it's funny. It's just, that's the one thing I'm just not getting with this movie is, you know, while Raimi normally can really kind of walk that tone between going completely crazy and serious, like, you know, drag me to hell. But with this one, it's like, man, I'm just, it's not working as well as it has in other movies. 
And I think it's because there's not enough of the crazy, like, funniness in there. It's just almost like we're going to be, like, 80% serious, and then we're going to add, like, this 20% completely out there. And it's like, oh, the mixture's not right. You know what I mean? It's not enough chocolate in my milk to make it a good chocolate <laughs> milk, you know? No, I'm, I'm following you exactly. And I think what you've hit on is that this movie tries to be serious, but then halfway through it just becomes this gonzo cartoon goofy thing. And then it becomes a Bond movie. You know, because this is something you see James Bond do a dozen times, hanging off a helicopter and somebody shooting grenades at him and all this crap. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's the Bond ending. Liam Neeson straps that to a, a truck that's running toward a bridge and it drags the helicopter into the bridge. You know, and, and which has also looked like a shot out of the, the Mission Impossible movie, which I know is later. But that's that's all it is. And it's the, it, it also falls into the trope of the hero blows something up and then has to walk away from it and act like he's totally disinterested in the explosion that he just had. You know, I'm like, no, no, you'd be ducking. Like it's, it, and we've played this guy as being really safe. Like for somebody who's got half his skin hanging out there or whatever, Westlake gets around a lot of fire and stuff. And I mean, I know he knows he can't be hurt by it, but he does know those organs are like, they're not made out of steel. Like they will be penetrated. And if you shoot him, I mean, he does bleed. The rivet shoots him later. He bleeds. It's, it, it's just, it's ridiculous. It, but it, goes from being comic booky and kind of weird and funny to now just absurd. And that's a Raimi problem. Like Raimi movies do this. Drag Me to Hell doesn't really do that. That's a good example. Uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are absolutely absurd. Army of Darkness is total absurdity. Um, the Spider-Man movies, you know, for what they are, they get more absurd as they go. And then the third one is just a cluster, you know, <laughs> right of absurdity by the end of it. And that's the problem with, with him is I don't think he knows how to rein in his absurdity. Yeah, Ra- Raimi can have that problem where I think it's like, you know, he gets he gets an idea and then he kind of like starts kind of throwing, you know, he throws a bunch of stuff at the wall. And then I think it's kind of at the end, he's like, well, why don't we just use it all? You know what I mean? It's like as opposed to taking like the one or two or three like kind of good ideas or kind of crazy ideas that he has that will work. He'll just start like throwing a bunch of stuff and it's just going to be like, hey, you know what? Maybe it all stick for you. Maybe half of it will stick for you, but it's going to be different than what you see. And so I'm not going to ever like really fault him for it. But, like, yeah, I mean, it just gets a little crazy, like, a little too much in this movie, and especially even now that we're at the end. And he's, you know, sh- um, you know, Francis McDermott's taken hostage, and they're going to go take her up to the top. You know, meets with Durant, who y'all saw got killed in the helicopter, but now it's, you know, Dark Man posing as him. And the boyfriend figures him out. They're up on top of this building, and he's asking him kind of some questions, and he talks about his kids, and he's like, well, wait a minute, you don't have any kids. And so he figures out that it's not Durant, rips off his mask, and all suddenly starts attacking him with uh, essentially a bolt gun that is the size of, I mean, this thing's monstrous. I mean, it's like the size of a jackhammer. And apparently there's like no, like, there's like no like push safety on there, like a nail gun, how you got to have like it pushed up against something to be able to eject the nail. It's just, it's firing like a freaking pulse rifle. At I know. I mean, first off, first off, there's lots of absurdities going on here. So this, this evil guy twirling the mustache he doesn't have, Streck, goes up there and talks about how my father, who was a builder, made me work the high steel to get over my fear of heights when I was a kid. So he's like dancing across these steel beams. Whatever. Okay. So we we have that going on. But then he picks- if you if you would have learned anything, you'd learn how valuable a safety uh, safety harness is. <laughs> that and this guy maybe maybe on a good day weighs 150 pounds. He picks up a piece of equipment that's got at least weigh 90 pounds that's hooked up to an air hose that's hooked up to a compression. 
tank that you don't see somewhere because that's how those things work. And then he proceeds to hold it and shoot it like you would hip fire a Nerf gun. You know, which is, again, it's just the absurdity. Like, the idea is actually cool. Like, if he had picked that thing up, hit Darkman with it, and, like, pinned his hand to the wall with one of those, like you would a rivet gun, that would be kind of cool. Like, I'd be like, okay, that's different. We don't see that. And I'm sure that's why Raimi threw it in here. Because what do you always see? These guys pull out a gun. Forget that. He's going to pull out a friggin' jackhammer gun or what or whatever. And they just had to make it work. And it's, it's a neat idea, but... When it comes on the heels of all this other goofiness, it's just another goofy ending. And the only, again, the, the lasting memory I had of this is when he basically pins Westlake's hand to a, to a beam and he, he thinks that's where he's got him. And what he doesn't realize is this guy can't feel any pain. And if he overloads on rage, you're screwed. So he hulks out, rips the rivet through his hand and then punches the guy. You know, but that's not even the end. That's what this what gets me is like that should be the moment where he grabs him, throws him emperor style off the thing and impales him. Nope, we still have some more fight after that. Like that is the ridiculous part. They don't even know how to end this movie right. <laughs> and then of course we get the the Batman ending again, where he's holding him up, you know, or the bad guy's hanging from the edge of a building and then he falls at the end. Yeah. And then he's like, course, you, you, know, you don't you don't let me go. You know, it'll, it'll cost you your soul or whatever. And he's already given the whole speech about like, I'm hollow inside or whatever. And so he just drops him. And I'm like, and I don't even I, yeah. but explain that to me. Like, he's like, again, he's like telling this guy like something like, like he's Batman. Like, it's going to be like, you know, you can't kill me. It goes against everything you stand for. How does he even know this? I no, mean, he's, he's like, killed to everybody he's encountered. Like, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, you know, he's killed Durant. He's killed his entire crew. He's got no qualms about killing these people. I mean, even the first henchman, he throws up, he puts his head up in the sewer and gets probably decapitated. And you're the big, big, big bad. And you're doing this stupid thing on top of a building. Throwing you off is probably the easiest kill he's had. Right. So. I was, I was, I was, that's what I'm saying. Like, this has been, you made this as easy as possible for this guy. Uh, again, it's, it's lack of motivation and lack of understanding of why these two people would even care about each other. Yes, I know it was his henchman that went and blew up the dude's lab. So that's revenge enough, right? But it doesn't make any sense why he went there to begin with. And, the other thing he doesn't do, which every smarmy bad guy tries to do, is talk you out of it. Even freaking Nicholson's Joker tried to talk Batman out of it before he punched him off the building. I was like, hey, man, you went in a guy with the glasses, right? Maybe we can work together. You know, like they always try to bargain at the end. This guy doesn't even do any of that. He's just he's evil the whole time and he's smarmy and you know it from the beginning. It's also a Scottish actor badly trying to sound like he's from New York and he's doing a terrible job of it. And so the less lines he has, it's probably the better. But it. It's just it's just a bad ending, and I can't help but feel that way. And then we get the tacked on end, of course, that no, I can be everywhere and nowhere, everyone and no one at the same time. I'm going to be Dark Man, and you can tell it's Raimi just trying to mint something that it's just not there. Because like McDormand at this point should be like, you know what? I think I'm going to transfer to Kansas City and just like open up a small family practice and just no more of this, you know? Because that's the look on her face. I'm going to go to Fargo and just be a sheriff. I think that's much better for. Right. Hey, it worked better roll for. <laughs> well, Nick, I think we've, we've said all we can say. It's time to do final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Dark Man? Uh, well, you know, I'm not going to sit there and say, like, this movie was awful. I think the last third really does fall apart. But I did have a good time with the first, you know, two-thirds of this movie. And, you know, let's just be honest. We, we've reviewed a lot of movies. We've reviewed a lot of junk. So... 
I can't put this anywhere near anything like Carnosaur or anything like that. But <laughs> it, but it's then again, it's not anything good or even like, you know, you look at like something else in the early 90s that's kind of like a schlocky like genre movie, like something like Trimmers, where it's like, you know what? It's, it's a B movie, but it's a lot of fun. This is a B movie that kind of just like it doesn't know what it wants to be. And so I'm sitting there confused on what I watched at the end. So it's it's a medium popcorn. It's something where I wouldn't recommend anybody really watching it or going out and seeking it. Uh, but if it's something that's on like USA or something at like one in the morning on Sunday, you know, when you get back and you just, you know, you had a, one too many and you just you're not going to fall asleep for a couple hours. It's like, eh, you know, you could do worse. So it's a medium popcorn for me. Yeah, our friends over at We Hate Movies call that the hangover movie, and uh, I understand what you mean in there. Yeah, You know, man, like I, this is definitely not small popcorn territory. This is not the room or the refrigerator or anything like that. Um, but it's not nearly as fun as something like Terror Vision, which is just as goofy, right, and ridiculous, but has so much more fun with itself, right? Or maybe even the original Critters, right, You know, which was a lot of fun for as goofy as it is. This movie falls apart in really the halfway point through. And that's the problem that it has. And I want to say, Raimi movies tend to do this. They have these great openings and cool setups, and you're kind of into it, and then it just kind of unravels at the end. And and sticking the landing is hard for him. I'm trying to think, like, Drag Me to Hell may be the best ending he ever concocted of any of his films. I'm trying to think of one that I thought was better. But they all seem to unravel, and Darkman's no different. And I don't think there was anybody there to tell him how to do it either. I mean, $16 million was a lot of money in 1990, but it wasn't that much, and they believed in the project enough that they thought, hey, we can make it back. And obviously they did. They tripled their budget. So good for them. But in the end... Uh, is it a satisfying ride? And I'm going to give this a medium popcorn too, but it's that sort of damning with faint praise medium popcorn. Like there was potential here, but you didn't live up to it. You know, it's just, eh, it's like, I don't know, Iowa football, you know, like it has so much, but then it just can never win anything. Right. I don't, I don't know. It's uh, sorry, Iowa football fans, but I mean, really like that, that's how I feel about dark man. I've, I've seen this movie exactly twice in my life. And I don't know if I'd ever have an excuse to go back and watch it again. Had we not done it here. So medium popcorn for me, interesting premise, neat setup, but eh, just doesn't quite work. Even though I think Neeson is very fun in the role and, and Larry Drake's fun as Durant. Did you ever see any of the sequels? Cause I never have. I have actually, uh, I remember renting them on uh again. It was uh, the back in the VHS days. I remember us going there and we saw like, there's another dark man movie. It's uh, the return of Durant and everything. And it's, it's starring the, the guy from the mummy who played the mummy, um, whatever his name is. Arnold he was Vos- in the first Arnold Vosloo. Yeah. He oh, played, uh, wow. the, he played the Liam, uh, he played the Liam Neeson role there. So yeah, he's in it. Uh, I remember the return of Durant was not very good, but actually died. Dark man die was actually surprisingly good. It was actually, I think what I, at the time, I think it was the best of the three in my opinion. Because it was more of like a, I mean, I'm just going off of, you know, 25 years ago or whatever, but I think it was more of like a noir detective story than really anything else. Like, I would love to know how they got uh, Durant back, but I'm not going to go watch it to figure it out. You know? Oh, no, he was, no, I can tell you right now, they opened like one of the first scenes of the movie. He's, you know, basically on a stretcher and he's in a coma. 
So, oh, of course. Well, you know, if if an explosion can blow Liam Neeson forty miles to a river or whatever it is, I guess an explosion from a helicopter could blow him out of it, and he would. Well, you got to remember the beginning of the movie. I mean, they did set it up when they're saying they're finding three blown up homeless guys in the river every week. So, I guess you know what in this in this universe, getting blown up and thrown away is it's. No different than someone it's, having a heart attack or something like that. It's, it's common. Your, it's the beginning of your journey. So that, that's it's just they, they, it they give them a couple aspirin and they're good. It's right. Fine. They cut a couple of nerves, stab them with a few pins for some medical students, and we're good to go. So, well, it you know again, Dark Man, eh, kind of mixed reviews from both of us. If it's on, watch it. But I, again, I wouldn't go out of my way to seek it either. I don't think this is one you have to see. But it was fun to revisit with you, Nick, and fun to have you back here on the Film Strip Podcast. Folks, you can find all of our podcasts on our feeds. So check us out. Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Uh, you can subscribe. you gotta, you got to find the show now, though. It's not on the old feed. So search for Film Strip Podcast, and you'll find our show. Not only this review, but... 170 plus of our our past catalog all back in there. Nick and I have done a lot of different uh, things through the years and reviewed with Ron and Brian and uh, our friend Kurt and a lot of other things there. So check us out. Leave us a new review on wherever you catch us on your podcatcher because it'll help us, you know, get the audience out. Follow us on Twitter at FilmStripPod and uh, let us know what you think of the show. We appreciate the support. So until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. You've been listening to FilmStrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.